Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Big banks are reporting their quarterly earnings this week, and broadly, they're doing pretty well. Belt tightening earlier in the year seems to have staved off disaster. Now many banks are sitting on piles of cash. Question is, save it or spend it? And roadworks abound in Egypt. There are highways cutting through leafy Cairo neighborhoods and skirting the edges of the Great Pyramids. Many seem poorly built. Some are out-and-out dangerous. And mostly, they look like political pandering. But first... A video of a man apparently being killed by police goes viral. Protests break out, grow, and spread, even internationally. Calls for police reform get louder and louder. The police react violently. Protesters are killed. It's too familiar a story, and this time it's happening across Nigeria. The focus of the protesters' fury is a group called the Specialist Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, a secretive outfit with a long-running reputation for brutality. Stop killing our boyfriends! Stop killing our children! Stop! Mothers are crying! Stop killing them! It seems clear that Nigeria's people have had enough. President Muhammadu Buhari has already made concessions. But the protest mood hints at discontent that stretches far beyond police reform. These have been completely widespread protests taking place in most of the major cities, not least in Lagos, which is the main commercial hub, and Abuja, which is the capital. Jonathan Rosenthal is The Economist's Africa editor. It is the biggest rising in Nigeria in a, in a very long time. So it seems there was a lot of pent-up frustration before this about the police. There really has been, and, and, and frankly, this goes back a very long way. The the protests have tapped into this really deep well of anger against the police, and in particular against the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, which was set up in the 1990s, mainly to tackle violent crime in Lagos. And this has been a particular target because of its its brutality. People have seen it as, as sort of absolutely faceless and unaccountable. Amnesty International looked into it, and, and they found that just in the period between January 2017 and May 2020, they found more than 80 cases of, of abuse, torture, extrajudicial killings, and they found that there'd been absolutely no accountability, no attempts by the Nigerian police force to police itself. And so how has the government responded to, to all these protests? So what you've seen is really two faces of response. And on the one hand, you've had quite a violent response by the police. So police have fired into protests. We believe that two people have been killed, shot by the police. There are also reports of police using water cannon, tear gas, beating protesters and the like. 
And at the very same time that this has been happening, you've had the government trying to come down almost on the side of protesters saying that they would dismantle this police unit, that they would redeploy the officers elsewhere. And President Buhari has, has spoken of this as just one step. In our commitment to extensive police reform in order to ensure that the primary duty of the police and other law enforcement agencies remains the protection of lives and livelihoods of our people. That there will be investigations, civil society and human rights bodies will be involved in this to try to, to, to bring accountability, but also bring greater oversight to policing in Nigeria. And that, that seems to be giving the protesters what it is they were looking for. It is a first step of what the protesters want. They, they've been firstly quite sceptical of this call. There is a very, very long history of, of you know, police violence and, 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 and police abuse. For many years, people in Nigeria would call special police units the kill and go. Previous protests have been met with, with previous promises to reform units and to bring in more accountability. So I think there's a lot of scepticism by protesters about whether the government will follow through. Every year, I remember January last year, he tweeted that South has been disbanded. Another year, the Twitter South has been dissolved. Different words to mean disbanded and dissolved. This year, we're not falling for the same lies, okay? The second issue is that they are, are, are simply concerned about you know, the much broader issue of, of policing injustice and rule of law than, than just this special anti-robbery squad. There are, are calls for better training for police officers, much better judicial oversight, and frankly, also just better pay, better training, and more effective policing. In, in that regard, it seems to be a real echo of what we've seen in, in America and elsewhere in the world this year. It really has. So when protests broke out initially in the United States around the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of empathy and sympathy within Africa broadly. And one saw you know, sort of both ordinary people and leaders of states speaking out on this issue. The year 2020 will be remembered for the massive groundswell to push back the frontiers of racism under the umbrella hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. As a country that has known too well the anguish of institutionalized racism, South Africa supports the demands for But it swift turned quite quickly in Africa in the sense that you know, a lot of civil society groups and, and, and just ordinary folk in Africa would see their leaders condemning what was happening in the US and yet sort of overseeing police forces that were frankly as, as violent and dangerous at home. Across many parts of Africa, there's really been this upwell of, of support, not just for Black Lives Matter, but, but turning into, into anger at, at their local policing. You know, of course, this Nigerian issue has, has, has also taken off. Nigeria has a very large, very, very active, very vocal diaspora. So we've seen protests taking place elsewhere. And, and, and that's, you know, brought in some international stars, Cardi B, Chancellor Rapper, John Biega, have been speaking out on this issue. But you say that promises of reform have, have come and gone in the past. Do you, do you think that the scale of the protests, uh, the, the international attention on the protest, will make this story different this time? There certainly seems to be a sense within Nigeria that this is different. And part of it is because it is tapping into this real demographic shift that is happening in Africa. You've got many countries with, with very elderly leaders, and yet you have a median age across sub-Saharan Africa of about 19 so you have this huge youth bulge coming through. In many cases, these young people feel 
not just that they are economically disadvantaged and, and, and struggling to find a place in the world, that their sort of parents and grandparents may have worked on, on farms and been subsistence farmers, and yet there is no space on the farms. These young people are looking for, for good jobs in cities. They're on the internet, they're connected to the wider world, and their aspirations are thus very different to, to, to those of their parents. So you've got this real sense of, of kind of anger and frustration in general. And then in particular, many young people in Nigeria especially have felt that they have been targeted by the police, that they've been subject to, to, to age-related profiling. If, if you're young and, and walking around with a laptop computer or, or have dreadlocks or earrings, the police are very much more likely to stop you. So that kind of speaks across a whole generation of people. And there does seem to be a feeling that, that as these protests are spreading, that, that young people are demanding not just the kind of narrower demands of, of, of policing reform and ending this violence by the state, but are turning into much bigger demands and protests for, for more accountable government, more democracy, and, and, and frankly, better opportunities in life. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. A second wave of COVID-19 is taking hold, and once again, world leaders are weighing up the trade-offs between lockdowns and livelihoods. This second chapter looks a lot like the first. The trials and fears plaguing much of the economy just aren't reflected in the books of the big banks. Yesterday, Goldman Sachs reported that its profits over the summer had doubled. The markets continue to benefit from the unprecedented monetary and fiscal support by central banks and governments globally. On Tuesday, J.P. Morgan Chase said its profits were up by 4% compared with the same period a year ago, well before the pandemic. We're growing security services and cash management services. We're growing the Chase Wealth Management business. We're adding private bankers. We just keep on growing. It seems clear that amid the rolling waves of COVID-19, America's biggest banks have kept on an even keel. The question is, what now? One of the ways that it's helpful to think about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on banks is that it's presented them both with this peril and an opportunity. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's American finance correspondent. The peril was that many of the loans that they had made might not be paid back because consumers and businesses were struggling. But at the same time, market volatility tends to be good for investment banks who can make a lot of money when markets are choppy. And this past week, seems to be showing that the peril associated with COVID-19 seems to have subsided, but that the opportunity is sort of still providing profits for investment banks. You say that's the case for investment banks. What about banking more generally? 
So while investment banks have done very well, commercial banks have done less well. And this is because they extend loans to businesses, they extend mortgages and loans to households. And those businesses and households, some of which have been affected by the pandemic, either been laid off or seen a sort of sharp slowdown in their businesses, they become less likely to pay those loans back. And the way that banks have to account for this is they have to write down the value of loans that they've made to people if they think that there is a chance that they might not pay them back. So you saw commercial banks making very extensive readjustments to the value of their loans in the first and second quarters of 2020. What you're hearing from commercial banks is that there was this write down, this big reevaluation of how creditworthy their customers were, but that they think they're largely done with that now. And those provisions have tapered off to a more normal level. So is all of this to say then that banks are generally out of the woods? For the most part, yes. Banks have accounted for what they think the likely losses are. They've made these huge provisions. And what that means is that they now have about 2 to 3% of their loan books provisioned for. And you aren't necessarily seeing those loan defaults come through yet, but you're seeing the sort of beginnings of that. But banks have more than enough provisions to weather those bad loans. The Federal Reserve has put a moratorium on banks conducting buybacks, so buying back their own shares over the summer, because they just wanted to make sure that banks had enough capital to weather anything that COVID threw at them. So a lot of banks essentially have more money laying around than, than might have been expected. I mean, what are they doing with it? So they have two options for any excess capital. They can either save that capital or they can spend it. What you're hearing from a lot of bank bosses is that they are looking for organic growth opportunities. Bank of America said that they were expanding their branches even in the pandemic. Other banks are even choosing to do deals. So you saw Morgan Stanley this week say that it was going to acquire Eaton Vance, an asset manager for $7 billion, which will sort of help expand their asset management business. So some banks are choosing to spend that capital on growth opportunities. Others are keeping it in wait for when they're allowed to do buybacks again, probably early next year. And what's the wider view here? The banking industry seems to be holding up. But what do these earnings tell you about the economy more broadly? Quite often, banks act as a sort of window into how the American economy is faring. And this crisis has been no different. So, for example, when I spoke to you in July, we just heard from bank bosses that although a lot of their customers had requested deferrals on their loans, so they were holding off on on paying them back while there was uncertainty around COVID. This time around, what we're seeing is that although banks have made these huge provisions for bad loans, the creep up in bad loans is relatively slow so far. But a lot of the stability that has come in the intervening time has come essentially from government stimulus, which which is expired or expiring all over the place. And in America, anyway, it doesn't look like it's coming again anytime soon. Does that fear play into these results at all? There was a lot of discussion on bank earning calls about whether government stimulus had just postponed defaults or whether it had really eliminated defaults that were going to happen. And that is one of the uncertainties that banks are grappling with, especially in the context of government stimulus running out. I think the reality is probably a little bit of both. Certainly for many households and businesses, the money that they got through stimulus checks or the PPP small business lending program will have prevented the sort of worst outcome for many of them. But at the same time, for example, many of the small businesses that got money through the PPP scheme have already spent all of that cash. And so without another stimulus, it does seem likely that defaults will will eventually crop up. And the question that bank bosses are teasing out now is whether you either get a second stimulus package or you get enough reopening that those defaults can remain low. And looking forward a bit, there had been a consensus that the Trump administration and the Republican Party were good for banks. Is that still the case? So in two important ways, that probably is still true. The first and most important one is the 
tax cuts, in particular the sort of cut to corporate taxes. That was hugely beneficial for banks. They definitely benefited from the lowering of that corporate tax rate. In terms of lighter regulation, it is true that there's been a streamlining of the post-global financial crisis regulation that was put in place under the Obama administration. But it's also possible that that would have happened under a democratic government as well. And so it's less clear cut on that, but certainly that has been helpful for banks as well. But in a sort of bigger and more, perhaps more important way, banks have grown weary of the chaotic and uncertain way in which Trump makes policy. So for example, the back and forth on the trade war with China, that kind of erratic policymaking style makes it very difficult for businesses to plan. And investment banks are big consultants to businesses. They've helped them plan for deals like mergers and acquisitions. And that kind of business can be scuppered by very uncertain or chaotic policymaking. And I think you've seen that reflected in how investors feel about the Democratic Party or a Democratic government as well. Typically, you think of the Republican Party being better for the stock market or better for investors as well. But actually what you've seen recently as we draw closer to this election is that putting a less chaotic policymaker in charge might actually be beneficial. Alice, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. To hear more from Alice on that dynamic, listen to this week's episode of Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance. You'll also hear from Paul Milgram, one of the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics, about how he found out about the prize from his co-winner, Bob Wilson. At 2.15 in the morning, I hear this banging on my door and my video doorbell goes off. Paul? And I can see uh, Bob there banging on the door and he's telling me, I can send you the video of it because it was recorded on the, on the best video doorbell. Paul? Uh-huh. It's, it's Bob Wilson. Yeah. You've won the Nobel, you've won the Nobel Prize. The pair won for their work reimagining auctions and not just the under the hammer kind. Look for Money Talks from your preferred podcast purveyor. When the construction of a new highway in Giza, on the outskirts of Cairo, was outlined for locals, there was immediate concern. We asked about it, and they said, don't worry, it's far away from the buildings, by about four or five metres. We said, OK, it's actually 40 or 50 centimetres away, and it's getting closer every time. But that didn't stop the road from being built. Now, some residents can reach out and touch the edge of it, from their windows. Before, I could watch my children get on the bus to school from my balcony. But now, I can't see the street at all. All I see, my entire view, is the bridge. Some joke about inviting motorists in for a cup of tea or selling petrol from their balconies. For others, it's hard to see the funny side. I personally have bought an apartment here for two million Egyptian pounds. How will the government compensate that? They will not be able to. And I do not want money. I'm asking to be respected. More than just an annoyance, the highway has become emblematic of the Egyptian government's ineptitude. This particular road in West Cairo looks quite absurd. Eric Connect writes about Egypt for The Economist. And I think it really reflects the state's mindset right now. How so? I mean, first of all, why are they building these new roads? 
The reason that the roads are being so rapidly transformed right now is because next year, the government will be inaugurating its new administrative capital city, 45 kilometers east of the old one. So what they're trying to do is, to the extent possible, sort of reorient all the traffic outside of the city and avoid having people have to pass through the congested parts of Cairo. But the problem is they're kind of doing this at any cost and they're doing it as quickly as possible. So in some cases, you get somewhat questionable results. Well, to a degree, I mean, that sounds like a helpful plan to spread people out more. So the overall plan is quite helpful and quite beneficial to a lot of people and popular amongst a lot of people. And the reason for that is... The roads in Cairo are notoriously clogged. It can take hours to get from one side of the city to the other if you leave at the wrong time of the day. So anything that can lessen this congestion is welcomed by a lot of Egyptians. But the important thing to point out is this is also very, very important politically for the, the government of President Abdel Fattah Sisi. He can show people that he's improving people's lives in a tangible way that they can feel. So for a lot of people, it is a popular project. Well, it's improving quality of life as long as it's not outside your window that the new highways are being built. Right. So a lot of these roads and projects are quite controversial to a lot of people, and it depends where you live. It's also become somewhat unsafe. There was one stretch of road where dozens of people were hit once it was reopened because you had a major highway going through a pretty pedestrian heavy area to the point where they had to get soldiers to help people cross. And how does all that road building intersect with cultural heritage? I mean, there's plenty of archaeology underfoot everywhere in Egypt, right? The projects have been also controversial for how they've been sort of driven through very sensitive sites historically. In the Giza Plateau, where the Great Pyramids are, there are two highways being carved quite close to the pyramids. And Egyptologists are worried that these are actually areas that haven't been completely explored or excavated. Another good example of this is in the City of the Dead, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site because it's got the burial plots of a lot of prominent figures from different eras that date back hundreds of years. They've begun in July sort of paving a major expressway through one section. And in many cases, people are only notified weeks before this happened to move the remains of their family members. So for these people in particular, this is obviously a very controversial project. And I guess the broader point is it, it seems strange at a time when so many big metropolises are essentially going greener, more pedestrian and bike friendly. Yeah. So when urban planners look at what's going on, they talk about it as something they see as incredibly retrograde. What they point out is that after World War II, what you saw was that cities around the world were prioritizing these big highway projects because of the boom in transportation and cars. But then over the decades, they saw that they kind of went too far and the quality of life in many cities went down. They became far less livable. And in more recent decades, you've seen a whole spate of projects around the world to sort of scale this back. So it's definitely a debate about the way in which you see the future of Egypt and whether these sort of areas that are, are historically beloved should be preserved or whether the city is just broken because of years of underdevelopment of its roads. Thanks very much for joining us, Eric. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.